Welcome to the Vanderbilt Ventures Insights Podcast, the show featuring entrepreneurs, innovators, investors, and educators from the greater Vanderbilt and Nashville communities. Our guest today is Joe Maxwell. Joe is the managing partner at Fintop Capital. Prior to Fintop, Joe was founder and CEO of Shareholder Insight, Cap Controls, and Investment Scorecard. Most recently, Joe is the EVP and MD of IPRIO, where he led private capital markets. Joe received his bachelor's degree from Denison University and his MBA from Vanderbilt University's own Graduate School of Management. Joe, thank you very much for being here with us today. Thanks. So Joe is here today to talk to us about uh, Fintop Capital. Fintop is a venture capital firm specializing in B2B service-enabled SaaS and software companies in the fintech space. So to kick us off, uh, Joe, would you mind just telling us a little bit about Fintop um, at a high level and why you started it? How did you know that you wanted to be an investor at this point? Well, uh, it's a good question. As a 25-year operator, um, I think it was time. I think I've been very fortunate uh, with a couple nice exits early uh, and never really had great relationship with the venture side of it. Thought that there were too many folks in the early venture space that came from banking, they came from services, they came from accounting, and and you know it, it, it it's kind of like anything. If if you if if you want to get clean and sober, you talk to another addict. You know you don't go to a bunch of uh, medical folks. <laughs> so right. you need to go to an operator. So really thought there was a real void uh, when we were building these businesses and had some partners that thought the same. Um, you know. As, as a 50-year-old guy that really understood the cloud and, and kind of SaaS infrastructure, we kind of built these rails or were part of building a lot of the, the current rails that everybody's operating on. It's, it's very rare in life that you have a clear view and know where the puck's going for the next 10 years. And uh, I saw a real opportunity to come in and, and really get on the early side of investing. There's always been good, great entrepreneurs, great companies. There's always there's a there's a there's an abundance of capital in the market right now, and and one thing I believe firmly is that a good business will always attract capital. Right. Um, but a good partner with capital is is a lot better, and and if you can just get in here early as an operator, there's there's just so much so many mistakes we've made, so much distance between all our operating businesses that we can get in, roll up our sleeves, build the appropriate infrastructure to help these businesses get a head start and, and be more capital efficient with the capital. I mean, we raise a lot of money in these businesses, and I'll be honest, it's, it's kind of like vitamins. You you get rid of about 80% of the value pretty quickly, yeah. and it's capital. You know, you, you, you know, capital doesn't always flow to the source that's most necessary, but if you can you can put some headwinds and some operating discipline in these businesses early uh, from former operators. It always helps. So can we talk a little bit about your current portfolio? You're uh, moving into your second fund. What is your investment philosophy and how is the uh, the first fund shaken out for you? Yeah, uh, so we invest in institutional B2B fintech. So we do not do direct to consumer. So that takes a, a big part of the, uh, the market out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we like we invest in thesis. We like uh, embedded architecture and infrastructure. So embedded banking, lending as a service versus like balance sheet lending. Right. So we really like the tech that drives a really good business. Um, we look for must haves, not nice to haves. It's it's really hard to scale a nice to have uh, it, it, when markets turn. 
and and you know you're in a downside market must-haves don't get unplugged so we really look for modernization of workflow nested inside of the must-have technology so that lends itself to a lot of the modernization of the digitization of banking you're looking at capital markets they're still very opaque and there's there's non-transparent markets that that fintech can can really bring to bear and help create efficiencies uh, we like the SMB small and medium-sized business accounting space mm-hmm. you know it's been left to bookkeepers and accountants and there's a lot of automation that's really been delivered into the enterprise so we love accounting as a service ERP connection and adapters in in certain verticals so you know we, we our, our portfolio kind of looks like that there's a lot of businesses in it that uh, <laughs> you'd look at and you'd be like why, why would they invest in this uh, you really you have to understand where the market's going and and so the first portfolio the first fund fully invested uh, 13 portfolio companies uh, we were very fortunate with an early exit our first deal we invested in um, was a great exit happened happened earlier than we had thought so so that was good to be able to return capital early to the investors they, they always like that um, but the portfolio is stacking up nicely um, do not have any zeros in the portfolio not saying that we won't but as of now we don't so I <laughs> feel great. pretty good about that um, Second funds already got four investments, um, so so we're we're off to the races. Added a partner for the second fund. Uh, he looks just like the rest of us. You know, he's a serial three hundred sixty degree operator. Has built, bought, and sold, and founded companies. So so we're we're really looking forward. The market is uh, we've got really good traction in deal flow right now. So one thing you said was you're looking for must-haves, not nice-to-haves. I'm sure that many of the pitches that you hear and companies you look at, they, they're all probably convinced that their product service is a must-have. Do you ever have to work with people to reconcile the differences there? Or Yeah, yeah it, it's not a hard reconciliation because we can just work through the stack and see where the pressure points are. And at the end of the day, can a business still if they turned you off, can they stay in business? I mean, at the end of the yeah. day, like you cannot turn off your billing system. You cannot turn off your payment system. You cannot turn off your accounting system. But if you've got a whiz-bang piece of engagement marketing technology uh, that may be really nice to have and it's super neat and you'd love to have it, you can turn that thing off really, really quickly. Uh, I kind of look at it as like toys. I've got three kids and raised them up and like I would watch you know you don't want to be a toy you know where they come in they play for it it breaks they don't care about it it's it it, it, it takes its position in the bottom of the barrel uh, so we really like sometimes we're not right you know you're never always right but we really like to look at must have and then we also you know pull the market you know most of our peers and our partners out there we have a huge advisory network of folks that are running large FIs running large fintechs and we go to them. Where are their biggest problems? So uh, on that note, too, um, you talk a lot about uh, being an operator. The partners here are operators have very deep operating experience uh, that you bring a ton of value to the portfolio companies uh, sort of versus uh, an investor who would look at exclusively at, at financial metrics and things of that nature. Do you, have you found that through your first fund you're getting a 
a very positive response from entrepreneurs. Do you have any anecdotes? That yeah, I mean, I, you know, there are a lot of anecdotes out there, but at the end of the day, when you're an entrepreneur, you're going to feel a lot more comfortable doing business with another entrepreneur, someone that's been there, been in the shoes, the dark spots, you know. Everybody looks great when you have a winner, but it's in those dark, dark days when you're losing that you got to pick up the phone and, and call someone that's been there and done that. So I think that really helps as operators. Uh, a good operator measures everything. So we're like, but you got to measure it in context. You know, uh, mm-hmm. we've seen a lot of financial operators come in and they're not really looking at the numbers. They won't understand the trends behind it. And as an operator, I think it just better prepares us to dig in and see what's driving the numbers uh, and know when to shut off shut off the investment and when to crank up the investment. I mean, it's, uh, you know, like I said, I couldn't imagine being an investor without having had to build myself. I would be right. very bad at this business. Right. Um, so when you're working with the companies and you're, you're giving entrepreneurs advice and talking to them, I'm sure through some of their darkest moments, is it, is it often anecdotal evidence where you draw back to things that you've done in the past rather than just speaking always. generally? Yeah, always. Okay. I always speak. You know, I speak from personal experience because I don't want to give strong opinions, but if I speak from experience, it's a lot more impactful always to tell right. your own story. Uh, I'll point anecdotally to <clears throat> to my mo- my personal experience to help them through those dark times. Uh, I'll also point to decisions that were made in the company, and I'll always point back to, you know, this was a conscious decision that was made, whether it be packaging, pricing, product set, product architecture, distribution. Uh, you know how they built their distribution, and and uh, you'll see the the decision. The decision to cater to large clients to where then that client sucks up all your resources and you're dependent on them, you know, not having a balanced portfolio. It's it's all the mistakes we make. <laughs> been there, done that. Right. Totally understand it. We've all been in those positions and those dire needs to keep your baby going and you'll you'll make crazy decisions to do it. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's the, the the personal experience goes a long way. So on that note, what would you say is so far the most rewarding thing about being an investor that you've seen? You've had enough time to watch some of your investments play out and watched your impact unfold. You know, I, I think for me is watching uh, and helping the entrepreneur build a team and proving to them that they don't have to make all the decisions and they can let go. And it's so awesome to watch an entrepreneur let go to finance or operations or product or sales and then watch them get liberated. And then it just untaps more of what they're great at. Because an entrepreneur that spins all these plates, they're not great at all of them. And if they say they are, you should never invest. But watching them kind of free up part of their life, it's, it's really cool. Uh, that and building the teams and building these teams and watching something grow from nothing is just so rewarding. Uh, so going from the first fund to the second fund, is there anything that you, you're going to do differently or that you thought? Oh, about yeah, I think maybe? you constantly learn. I think there's the, the hard corrects <laughs> yeah. where, you're, where, where you're like, never again. And then there's the soft corrects. And I think we just learn as we go. You, 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 you get a little better skill set. 
you get you get more attuned to, to, to certain things as you move forward. I think the thing we've learned most about from one to two is say no quickly when no means no. Mm-hmm. Get out of these things. Don't spend a lot of time, energy, and effort because you're taking valuable time away from the entrepreneur. So we don't go on a lot of fishing expeditions. And uh, if we find that we're in a heavily competitive environment, we will always give to the other competitor because no deal is so great. That's the other thing. Don't ever get emotionally tied to a deal because there's a better deal coming around the corner. And once you really believe that, then then it helps you be a lot more objective in looking at these uh, possible investments. Right. Well, we're here in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, and I've heard you mention before flyover fintech geographically mm-hmm. is an area of interest. Could you talk about that a little sure, bit? Sure, sure. You know, you, fintech's white hot. We all get it. What's driving that are a lot of things. But the largest thing kind of driving fintech today is we're modernizing all of the rails in which we conduct finance and operations and our money on and, and couple that with the large FIs. Financial institutions are no, largely not developing their own tech internally. They cannot, the speed, they just can't. So they're going to the market, which opens it up mm-hmm. as a huge market. And, you know, capital, you'll read all the stats. 80% of the deals are funded out of two zip codes because, you know, Boston, New York, Silicon Valley, I mean, that's, let's say that's where the majority of the capital is. It's true. It yeah. is. It doesn't, this is a big country. So, so it's really great to be in kind of flyover country, southeast, midwest, because you'll get a lot of first dibs on really good businesses. And you got to work hard. You got to make sure your networks are fluid. But you'll get first dibs on deals that are just killer deals, and they tend to be more capital efficient, yeah, because uh, the capital's not in abundance. So you'll find people uh, managing their cash, stretching it, going further because it's just not not an abundance of cash. Right. Well, having been uh, an investor now for for a while, what what do you really miss about being an operator back back in those days? You know, there's a lot of things I don't miss. So I could I could literally list all the things I don't That's miss a, a lot quicker list. than what I miss. I miss building the team. I miss building executive teams, uh, getting people, getting rational people to do irrational things. It's really fun. Getting people to work out of their, their comfort, getting them to stretch. Today, I get to kind of operate through an operator, but I, mm-hmm. I tend to don't get to operate with the whole team, which is fine because that needs to be the CEO's or the founder's wake. It doesn't need to be mine. And that's a weakness, too. Sometimes I'll get, yeah. get in an off-site with the team and I want to take over. Not literally, but I want to just, you know, it's just, it's just my personality. Uh, so I probably miss that. Uh, I don't miss the HR issues. I don't miss signing real estate contracts for rental and building out space. I don't miss conferences. I don't miss, there's so much I don't miss because uh, I got to do it for a long time. And it's really fun to have a new career, to like later stage in your career to do something totally different. Because um, I, I really, I love to learn. I'm a life, life, lifelong learner. And um, this is really, really a, a great opportunity. So when you're working with these companies, helping them build their teams and advising them in that capacity, what, what do you tell them to look for in terms of the people they want to surround themselves with at that critical juncture? Coachable. Can they work on a team? Um, 
if they have to speak over people, it's just the same thing in your business, in your groups at Owen. There's no different. I mean, right. that, that, that kid in your group that has to be the smartest, has to always present, has to always, always be the right person. They're a horrible executive. Uh, it's the quiet, stick to it, hardworking uh, plotter that's going to be the best executive on a team because they're humble. They don't have the right answer. They can play well on a team. They can take orders. They can. They don't have to be certain. You need clarity, not certainty. Uh, they don't avoid conflict. It's all the things you your guys are learning right now to deal with. And uh, that peacock that struts around and has to be the smartest one is the first one you want off the team. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at fundraising, how would you contrast – raising your fund here versus when you were raising that's a great question it's much harder to raise a fund interesting much harder because when you're raising for a company you have the metrics to drive it you have the market someone already has a theme they're looking for you there's tons of capital looking exactly for your metrics so you can map to that when you're raising a fund and you're not a lifelong fund guy like first-time fund manager, everybody sits there and says, oh, great, are they going to be undisciplined deal junkies? Is this a lifestyle fund? Uh, there's all these questions that come up, and, and they're not saying them, but you know they're saying it. Right. So you, you, you really, in an early fund, you can't go to the institutional markets. And I understand that. They're very disciplined. They're chartered by a mission, by an investment policy statement. You don't yeah. map to it. The consultants and the gatekeepers keep it. But there's wonderful family offices out there and former operators that get it. And then you just have to hunt and peck. There's no efficient way mm-hmm. to get to them because they're kind of looking for you, but they're not. You know, They've got a million things on their plate. But once you kind of line up and find the right investor, what you'll find is they'll introduce you to a couple folks. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you're not allowed to solicit these things. You know, there's general solicitation rules against it. And so you really can't can't market a fund you know you, there's nothing you can do to market a fund which makes the challenge that much more gratifying when you get through it it's it's kind of fun it's rewarding so yeah you find that uh, you mentioned um raising money from people who have been operators is maybe easier because they identify with you is that something yeah first generation that's one thing we found if the if the patriarch is alive in these family offices mm-hmm. and is kicking and making the decision, you have about a 90% more likelihood of closing them Okay. because they connect to you and they right. love it and they want to be involved because they just sold their business. I mean, they, they don't know how to be rich. There's no, yeah. it's not something like these aren't, these aren't people that were born rich. These are people that were grinders and built their businesses. So it's, it's, and, and it makes for great LPs because you can call them and get their input and you know their background and they just want to be helpful. So it's, it's really fun. How is that dynamic with uh, the LPs working with them? It's been good. You know, it's, uh, we, we're aggressive communicators. Um, we send out very comprehensive quarterly reporting. We take calls all the time. Um, we have meetings with them. We take deal flow from them. Some of our best deals have come from the LPs, which is great because, you know, they're throwing us their deals. Uh, so if, I couldn't be happier um, with our LP roster at this point. All right. Well, to close us out, uh, 
what is a, a problem that you're really excited about in fintech right now or a trend? Uh, bookkeeping. You know, if you keep the books, general ledger, you think of QuickBooks, Sage, Dynamics, NetSuite, Intact, all these different GL systems, right? General ledger systems. What percentage, let me just ask you, what percentage do you think are in the cloud? Native. Today. Today. Uh, U.S. Less, less than half? 8%. Oh, well, so less than half. Less than half. So that leaves a 92% market of not if, it's when they transition. So that's a big market, right? Because once you're in the cloud, you can connect into an app market for all your different little ancillary bolt-ons and hook-ons and all the app centers and the connectivity. Right. So there's a theme for you. All right. Well, that was Joe Maxwell, uh, managing partner of FinTop Capital and an Owen alum. Tune in next time for another episode of the Vanderbilt Ventures Insights Podcast.